Pasha's not say Friday night. The uh, the Minig Ashkenaz is very difficult to understand in relation to Berchas Kenan. That Minig Ashkenaz only dukens on Yantiv. Many Sephardim, they dukhan every day. Some dukhan on Shabbos. I don't mean in Eretz Yisrael. I mean outside of Eretz Yisrael. Where did it come that we're not going to dukhan every day? What's this that say? So, Ramah uh, tries to master the admitting Ashkenaz. And he says because people are not happy enough. People don't feel good enough. Joy. They're not happy enough. They don't have the ability to 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 do them because they're not happy. Well, why are they happy on Shabbos at least? Forget during the week. Why aren't they happy on Shabbos? Says Ramah, they're not happy on Shabbos because they're still thinking about their jobs. They're still thinking about their work. So Yadav, they're happy enough. Oh, so Yadav, they're happy. So at least let's do them in Shabbos. No, we pushed off to Musa because then people know when the exit sign is. And Musa, they already smell the exit. They already smell the chant. They know when it's time to leave, says the Ramah. So therefore, we do them by, by, by Musa, because that's when it's sufficient for not happiness. So it makes it a little bit easier, more palatable to be able to go through the kinois. You know there's an end date. You know it's not here all day, even if it seems interminable, even if the introductions never stop. You know that there is an end date, and we are mindful of that. As I said, I wanted to start <clears throat> with something that is that's just that's unbelievable. Um, and it's happening right now, <clears throat> and it's 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 mind-boggling. On a personal side, I uh, when I was a young adult, I was obsessed with the news. I read the news, and then I think I graduated maybe a little bit. And I started, I stopped reading the news. I started reading just op-eds. And um, I've tried to become a little bit more mature, not to read, not the news, not the op-eds. That's what one needs to be able to do work, look at the headlines, actually explore if it's a specific story that one actually needs to read. So I don't actually know what I'm about to say in, in great detail, but I remember from years ago, at least in part, Here's another introduction. When you ask everybody why second base of Mikdash was Nakharab, everybody tells you it's because of Sinaskinam. And it's true. Sinaskinam has become the simple explanation that everybody utilizes to explain the destruction of the second bias. But if you look in Chazal, if you look at our kina yesterday, if you look at the first kina from yesterday, this is just to make sure we have, you know, enough people nervous. Yes, we'll start at kina number one. If you look at the first kina that we said last night, you see over there, it says, what was the reason for the for the destruction? You see, why? Right? Right. 
Right, we didn't treat the Nisachamayim correctly. We had Sinas Chinam. We didn't appropriately send away the slaves when the time was up. Right, we 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 mistreated the Ani. Ireno Kisaron Nechamaro. Why? He divided the colony. We 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 humiliated Kadosh Baruch Hu. Nashim Tzin Inu. The women were mistreated. Why? He Eishes Ish Timu Vezinu. Sarm Biyadim Nislu. Why? He Gzelas Ani Chamsu Vegazlu. People acted inappropriately. Why did they get the old men really mistreated? Mistreated the orphan and the widow. We didn't do a So you see just there a list of numerous reasons about why the bias was destroyed. And if you go through the Gemara Shabbos at the end, the Sefer Menachas, the Gemara Yuma, you see myriad reasons. Various Midrashim and Echa Rabbah. I mean, so many different reasons why the, the bias was destroyed. The Gemara Gittin. The Gemara tells us, in Gittin, Rabbi Yechon himself tells us three reasons why the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. Rabbi Yechon Bamatia tells us, Ashal Dano Din Taira. The Gemara asks, what does it mean, Dano Din Taira? So they didn't look at the Mishra, said then. And Gittin, he says, why did the Beis HaMikdash be destroyed? Because there was the Invesanusa of, of, of Tyre and Afkulas. And, and he also says, oh, you know why Yishlam is Nacharat? Because the mice of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. So Yishlam alone is giving you all these different reasons. So many reasons are brought down. We have the Sukkim that tells us about the Shemitah. We have Takas Shalavat, Shalashem, Lakyakab, Sumach, Vitzavalebab. We have the Gmar Nadarim that Yishlam Baruch, Betarit, Chila. Myriad reasons are given as to why the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Right? We say, we say, for example, that the uh, the Tanegish of Beis Raman were not were not learning anymore. They didn't say Kriyashma. They didn't do the proper Teichachachamim. All of these are some of the reasons that you find throughout Chazal. And yet, we all say that the and yet we all say that the um, that the uh, the reason for the destruction is because of sinasina. It's coalesced into that being the fundamental reason for the destruction of the second bias. I'm going to tell you my theory as to why. I think. First of all, it underpins many of the other reasons that we see in Chazal, for sure. But I think there's another reason. Most of these reasons, if you look throughout Chazal, they're always given with a Amar ahead of it. But when you look at the Gemara and Yuma, the Gemara and Yuma says that the second bias of the Shruva Sinaskinam is no man the Amar given. It's the Stama the Gemara. So it seems to me, perhaps, that that's a bit of a smach to say that the reason of sinasrinam is a stronger reason than all the other reasons. In other words, on the one hand, maybe it underpins many of the reasons, for sure. I think that's a common theme or a common denominator in all the reasons. You say you're treat orphans, if you mistreat... Uh, if you mistreat the orphans, 
if you, um, you know, uh, um, are not putting the kids into schools, all of that, because you can connect it to Senas Finim for sure. That's one possibility. The other possibility is all the reasons are given among the Omar. Sinas Finim is not, which sounds like that's sort of the, the, the most fundamental of the reasons. The Kodak doesn't need to have a specific mind Omar to support it. It is the Stamina Gemara, that is the reason. We are, and I'm going to do something that, for me, um, something I haven't done, um, and I, I'm not sure that I can do it correctly, but I'm going to try. I refuse to talk about politics, mostly because politics doesn't, I don't enjoy it at all. And it, I, I, I enjoy it. Well, he would have started the word Shabbat. Rabbi would always emphasize okay. the sense of shock. Okay. As we've mentioned almost every year, the Torah tells us it's going to be our Shabbos soon. It's going to be our Shabbos soon. I, as much as I used to love reading about politics, I am repelled by it today. To me, it just seems it's more people looking for the, out for themselves. But this topic that is convulsing the land of Israel today needs to be discussed. And we need to understand what kind of an ace sorrow that we're in right now. I don't think we understand it, but before we talk about the practical implications, I'll tell you what I decided. The reason I decided to discuss this was because the former prime minister of the state of Israel, a guy by the name of Ed Omer, I believe he's pretty disgraced given some improprieties in his life, found it possible to say in an interview, according to a headline that was in my inbox that the state of Israel is entering into a civil war. Now here's the context. The context is that some 40, 50 years ago, the then president of the Israeli Supreme Court, a person by the name of Aaron Barak, who was himself a descendant of the Litvak, um, descendant of some pretty big um, ancestors. He embarked on a revolution. For those here who have been in law school, a sort of uh, amped up a, a, uh, a notion of judicial review on steroids. Judicial review is, in effect, the ability that the courts have to visit a law that was passed by the legislative branch. And the courts say, this law is in fact against our constitution. Israel doesn't have a constitution. They have something that's called the basic law that was given a sort of quasi-status, quasi-constitutional status. 
what Ram Barak did in his tenure as the Supreme Court President of Israel was effectively say that everything is justiciable. Everything is subject to judicial review. There's nothing that's not beyond the purview of the Supreme Court. In America, there's something that is required that before you get into court, it's called standing. If you don't have standing, you can't get into court. You can't bring to court just a above my it's a good idea that you have a theoretical question. It has to be something that's someone that was injured. There has to be a certain amount of money that's at stake. There has to be certain fundamental questions that are met. These are known as procedural areas of law in order to be able to get into the court. You can't just go to court and do whatever you want. The Israeli Supreme Court became and is known today in the Western world as the most active proponent of judicial review because they're willing to review anything, any decision. And not only that, they're willing to be a case of a court of first impression. Court of first impression in the United States, the Supreme Court is not a court of first impression. In very, very rare circumstances, is the Supreme Court of the United States able to be approached directly? Most often, the American Supreme Court needs to be approached after going through a slew of other courts. You can't just walk in to the American Supreme Court. You have to first go to a lower court, and then you have to go to an appeals court until you get to the Supreme Court. And in that way, you sort of parse out all the various problematic cases, the ones that could be decided by the easier court, by the lower court, sort of like think about Yisrael, right? You set up all the different systems to be able to handle the easier cases and the harder cases, and only the hardest cases go to the Supreme Court. The Israeli Supreme Court not only is willing to do judicial review on anything, they're also willing to review cases as a matter of first impression without forcing the litigants to first go through a series of courts, which means that the Supreme Court in Israel has the largest caseload, probably of any Western democratic Supreme Court. And then the third aspect of the Israeli Supreme Court that is very unique is their standard of judicial review to overturn is much lower than the American Supreme Court or other Western democracies is the Supreme Court. In many democracies, the Supreme Courts, they take a more toned down or more conservative approach as to when they will overturn a legislative decision. And the Israeli Supreme Court is willing to do it even when they say something is somewhat unreasonable, which is in the idea of constitutional law, a much lower standard then needing a, an American Supreme Court, a much higher standard before you would overturn the decision. All of this is background to, and uh, I was interested in this topic years ago, in case you're wondering how I know a little bit about it. Um, and I remember asking Aaron Barak about Osama bin Laden, 
and because he had given a speech, uh, gone to a speech where he had said that killing Osama bin Laden was was wrong. But I, I, it was a clever, it was a clever kind of argument that he was making, which was in effect that it's against the law, but we wouldn't do anything about it. Remember, I, I went to go ask him a question, but I remember at the time being very torn by the idea. And I wrote a, uh, I wrote a, the only time I was exercising enough, I wrote a letter to the New York Times. I think this is 2004, 2003, I don't remember exactly. Um, where, and it's a short letter, but the, the question is, who is the activist? That was how I titled it. Who is the activist? In today's day and age, you see that many people view the current American Supreme Court as being very activist because they're overturning decisions that the Supreme Court has previously taken. For example, the famous decision about abortion as an example. So in the media, if you read the stories, you'll see that they say that the current Supreme Court is very activist. I'm not saying rightly or wrongly. I'm not interested in the actual practical aspects of the topic. What I am interested in is who is the activist? And my argument in that New York Times letter to the editor, the same one I'll make now, some things don't change. And the argument is that if somebody comes along and makes a revolution, and then somebody comes along years later and takes it away, the second person is not the activist. He is the master at Yoshna. He's the one who's bringing back the way it always was. The first guy is the activist. And it's not fair to just term the second person the activist when he's simply trying to get back to what was the norm. And this is the question that's going on today in the land of Israel. Aaron Barak's revolution spawned the counter-revolution of people who were horrified at the idea that a Supreme Court that's unelected can overturn decisions by the legislative branch. Now, I want to be clear. Judicial review is something that's a time-honored concept in Western democracies because you otherwise face the tyranny of the majority, which is that in a democratically elected regime, if you have more people on one side, they could legislate away against the minority. And that would be, un that would be not right. That would be unfair. So you have a court to try to keep it in balance. And you need to have a court to keep it in balance. The question that is roiling the land of Israel today is because 50 years ago, Aaron Barak took it on upon himself, rightly or wrongly, I'm not interested in, but rightly or wrongly took it upon himself to visit and revisit decisions that were made by the Knesset, and he did it in a way that no other Western Democratic Supreme Court does. Everything is justiciable. Everything is a case of first impression and everything can be overturned if it's unreasonable. So you say, okay, well, that seems to be a pretty activist Supreme Court. 
maybe it's appropriate to overturn it. Maybe so. But in the land of Israel today, right now, you have a Knesset that overturned, it was attempting to overturn aspects of this approach to judicial review. It's a majority of 64 seats of 120. And that's not a very huge majority. And it's reflected in the demonstrations and in the counter demonstrations that are going on right now in the land of Israel. You have literally weekly tens of thousands of people getting on the street, screaming for what they believe in. And let's not think for a second that one side is good or that one side is bad. Because if we do, then we're totally missing the point. Each side is attempting to defend what they consider valuable, what they hold most dear, what they treasure about the land of Israel, what they think is important in their life. But if you read the news stories, the headlines at least seem to be saying that Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran are salivating on the prospect of Israel self-destructing and if you say, oh, ah, ah, it'll, it'll cool itself down. Yes, we have to dive them for that. But to think, oh, it will cool down. Remember, the state of Israel is today getting on its middle 70 years. If you think about it, how long did the Malchus of David and Shlem HaMalach last? David HaMalach was a king. For 33 years, he was a king in Yerushalayim, and for seven years, he was a king in Hebron. Why was he a king in Hebron for seven years, not in Yerushalayim? Because there was a civil war. After the death of Shaul HaMelech, there was a war. They didn't accept David right away. It took a long time, so he was only the king in Hebron. And only after they won, and after Abner became a turncoat and came over to the other side, is when the Jewish people became united. So they became united under David for 33 years. And then Shlem HaMelech was for another 40 years. So again, in the middle 70s of the first Jewish commonwealth. And what happened after David HaMelech and Shlem HaMelech after they passed on from the scene? What's the next thing that happens? <clears throat> Civil War. Rechavah becomes the king. And the northern kingdom, right, the, the tribes from the north, they split away. And there never becomes again a Rapparoshman. The civil war that disintegrates the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Dovin and Shlema is no longer, never to be repaired, never to have a Rapparoshman. You think that that's so amazingly unique? It seems that perhaps you could say in the times of the Shaiftim, right, from the period of the, the positive tells in the beginning of Malachim, that from the time of they left Mitzrayim until the time of Shlomo built the bias was 480 years. So if you strike out the, 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 the 40 years in the midpoint, you strike out the 40 years of Laman Amalek, you strike out the years of Shol, you strike out some of the years to see how long was the period of the judge. It's not 100% clear exactly, but it's in the 300s. And at that time, the Jews lived like tribes. 
they weren't united in any way, in, in, a, in a total way. And you see their battles among themselves. The most classic one is, of course, the Pilegish Begiva, which we don't know when it takes place, even if it's at the end of Shaftim, but was effectively a civil war where the tribes gathered together and destroyed the shape of Binyamin. We think it's unique. Like, oh, this is not a, this is gonna be a one time. If, if God forbid the land of Israel was to disintegrate into really outright conflict, that would be a unique, it would not be unique. It would not be unique at all. When we think about the Machos Kashmunoi, how long the Machos Kashmunoi last? Right? So, this is now the second temple period, second bias. The Jews have come back. They're a vassal state. They're controlled by the Persians, the Medes. The Greeks, the Seleucid Greeks. At what point, how long does the Machas Kashmunai actually last? About 100 years, a little over 100 years or so. What does it disintegrate into? Civil war. For those who are uh, on my email, I shouldn't say it now. For those who are on my email and read it, and in this case, I sent one Arab tissue up because nobody had a chance to read it because I didn't have a chance to write it. But I mentioned there a Gemara appears a few times in Shas, both in Babli and Yushami. It's actually different between Yushami and Babli. I didn't discuss Yushami. I didn't discuss Yushami because it wasn't germane to what I was trying to get at. But in the Babli, the Misa appears in, 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 in three places. It appears in Bavakama and Yuma and Saita. And the Gemara tells us there about Orkanas and Aristobulus, that they were fighting each other. These were brothers. They were from Malchus Kashmunoi. They're the end of the thing. They're the end of the line. And they degenerated into a civil war. And each one of them is trying to get the Romans to help them out. The Romans just say, like, you know, the Gemara tells us. The Gemara tells us. In, um, the Gemara tells us in uh, the Misa that uh, Alexander Alexander the Great went to the Hariachosha. He went to the he went to the uh, kingdoms in Africa. And the Gemara says that when he went, so um, <coughs> so he's going, uh, Alexander the Great is going, he gets to the uh, kingdom where it's so wealthy, they mamish, you know, they have everything. And two litigants come in front of the court and they're talking about their case. What's the case that they have, these litigants? The case is that one of them bought a field from the other one. And, uh, and um, when he uh, bought the field, he found there was a whole treasure in the field. So he's saying, the seller should get the treasure. I didn't buy a treasure. I just bought a field. And the seller says, I sold him the field, whatever's in the field, including the treasure. I didn't know about it, but it's his. I sold it to him, fair and square. So the king there in, the, in, the, in Africa says that, does you have a son? Do you have a daughter? You should split it. And they, they, they should give each one the, the, the treasure and let them get married. And that's how you split it. That's, that's how you make them sure between your case. Alexander is standing there and he says, well, you like what? And he's Mishtaimim. And he says to him, why are you so shocked? You don't like the way I judge it? How would they do it in Greece? How would they do it in Macedonia? So Alexander says, if it was in Alexander, if it was in my country, I would kill both litigants and take the treasure. That's what happens. Horkinus and Aristobulus, they're fighting about who's going to control the base of Who's going to control the land of Israel? 
So they each one going and petitioning the Romans. What do the Romans do? They come and take it for themselves. Get rid of Horkinus and Aristobulus. And then you have Herod, who is being put in, who's a non-Jew, to become the king of Israel. That's how justice is normally meted out. So the Mahosh Kashmanoi, and that's the, the Gemara that I was referencing, as an old man who was using Fakhma um, Sivanis to explain something about the carbon tumult. In Yushama, it doesn't appear. The old man is not mentioned at all. That's, that's why. Anyhow, so, so getting back on our topic that internecine battle is not at all unique in Jewish history. And everything that's happened over the years has literally just given us more and more proof that it comes a point, whether it's 50 years or 100 years, when we degenerate and disintegrate into civil war, we shouldn't think that right now is a unique time, that somehow this has never happened before, this is totally never gonna happen now, that is wrong. And that is an entirely un, uh, an uneducated understanding of Jewish history. Unfortunately, Jewish history is rife and replete with great situations, being turned inside out. Why? Because of the fact that we couldn't have Shalom Benin. We couldn't get along. And right now, if a former Prime Minister of Israel, as disgraced as he might be, is willing to say on a live television interview that we are descending in the land of Israel into a civil war, we have to be very, very much sitting right now. We have to be Davin to the Rabbani Shalom, of course, that somehow a compromise should be found. But let's not kid ourselves. If tens of thousands of people are not showing up to reserve duty, if tens of thousands of people are talking about leaving, do not think for a second that, oh, those that remain, they'll be able to perfectly run a country. We work best when we have a divergence of opinion. And I don't mean to be speaking because it's an ESG topic. I'm off the clock now. This is not the uh, this is not the time or the place. I'm saying this in all seriousness. The Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin. I don't want to go off on too many tangents, but the Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin, right, that we know that if you have a bezdin that decides that somebody is everybody a whole bezdin, everybody agrees that this person is chayv. He's chayv misa. Why? What's halacha? Pata. Why? If you don't have a divergence of opinion, if everybody agrees, there's a problem. It's a problem. We need to have the ability to challenge. We need to have the ability to understand that it's not ideal to force down somebody's throat a different approach. But the best way to get somebody on your side is to convince them to explain the righteousness and the certitude of your cause. If you have a huge majority, it's one thing. But if you have a beerist of majorities who attempt to convince somebody, it's not easy. It's a long and torturous road. But if you think you're going to be able to legislate it into law, sure, maybe you win today. But the greater battle, you lose. And it behooves us here, even if we're in America, and even if all we can do is really dominate, to take one lesson out of this, and that one lesson is sinaschina. What we are seeing today, if you ask, and on this, maybe we conclude our introduction. 
The Gemara tells us, we mentioned, that the Gemara says that the first bias was destroyed because of the big three, and the second bias because of the sin of skin, and we said that the Talmud that the Gemara doesn't give him on the Amar. The Gemara then says, further down on that page there, on Tessim Abate, the Gemara then says an unbelievable line. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yechonon, Rabbi Lezer, Da'amri Tarvayu, the first bias was Nisgal of the oven, so therefore was Nisgal of the cakes. The second bias wasn't Nisgal of the oven, therefore wasn't Nisgal of the cakes. And you ask yourself, what is the Gemara talking about? The Gemara just said, Al Atar, a few lines up. The Gemara says that the first bias is the because of Gilai Rashi Chastam and Avodah Zar, and the second bias is the because of Sinas Chinam. So we know exactly why the bias was destroyed. What does it mean? Rishenim Shenis Galu Avodim Nisgalu Kitzim Achrenim Shleim Nisgalu Avodim Shleim Nisgalu Kitzim. Says Rashi, Nisgalu Avodim means was Nisgalu to others. In the first bias, they didn't hide their oven. In the second bias. They were, what does it mean? Shalom and Skala They didn't let anybody know it. They were hiding it. They were hiding it. They didn't let anybody know the Abbeir. I don't understand. We just quoted, we opened up this class. We opened up the Kinnis. We quoted how many different sources about what the reason for the destruction of the second bias was and how many of them related to Sinasinam. We don't know the reason. It means that nobody knew what the Abbeiris They didn't tell anybody what the Abbeiris were. We have so many Madame, everybody's telling us what the Averis are. Now you want to say, well, everyone's saying the Averis because nobody really knows. But but they had many ideas of what the Averis could be. Everybody was pretty sure about what the Averis are. Now, I'd like to suggest you a different understanding of what it means, Shalom Nisgalo Avino. Shalom Nisgalo Avino doesn't mean like Rashi says that it wasn't Nisgalo to others. It wasn't Nisgalo to themselves. If you ask the person, do you have a good reason for why the second bias was destroyed. Everybody would tell you because of sinasfinam, as they tell you today. And if you go ask any individual, do you have sinasfinam? And he will tell you, me? I have no sinasfinam. Why was the second bias destroyed? Sinasfinam. Do you have sinasfinam? Absolutely not. I, you hate him, but I have a good reason. Nobody today would deny that Sinasin was the destruction of the, the reason for the Siva of the destruction of the second bias, and yet nobody would agree that they have Sinasina. They only have Sina for a good reason. If that's the case, then the same way Abyechan and Beleza, they were able to say that 2,000 years ago, that Achrainim Shalonis Galo Avainam, then 2,000 years later, it's the same thing. It's still Shlainas Galavainam. Nobody is willing to say that they have any Sinaskinam themselves. Everybody's willing to say, I'm Yenim, on the larger body politic of the Jewish people, and nobody is willing to take on the responsibility of acknowledging that they themselves suffer from a surplus of Sinaskinam. I myself am getting nervous about the time, right? I don't even know, you know, but the pandas keep coming. So I just mentioned that that there's a Gemara. The Gemara tells us in Gittin that the reason for the destruction 
of, of the second bias, among the reasons, was they were not able to withstand the siege. Really, they should have been able to withstand the siege, right? They had three different people there, three great gvirim, um, right? Askanan, who could have helped them withstand the siege. It was Natim Ben-Gurion, it was Ben-Sid and Menkava Savua. And each one of them had so much that they were able to survive the siege. They had wood, they had wheat, and they had barley, and they had the basic necessities and oil and salt and all the things in order to be able to survive the siege. But the reason it didn't survive the siege was because it was a bunch of Buryanim, was a bunch of people who were very against having any peace with the regnant Roman Empire. And they wanted to fight. And they felt that the Jews were not willing enough to fight because they had so much. They had too much to be able to really feel the pressure. And so they burned down the storehouses from each of these three gentlemen. And that caused the Jewish people not to be able to survive the siege. This, the Gemara says, is a, one of the sivas for the destruction of the second bite. The Gemara tells us the reasons why each one is called their name. Right? Kabbalah Savu is because you, you, mamish, you would leave his house. You come in hungry like a dog, you leave mamish like a, like a full dog. Right? But this like is he was so wealthy that he would have his sisters, they would be going on carpets because he didn't walk on the floor. They had a carpet that he walked on. They would move along carpet carpets. And Agdim Ben-Gurion, why is he in Agdim? And his name was Buni. The Gemara in China says his name was Buni. A bit of an odd name, but that was his name, Buni. So, not the sign Buni. I think that's how we pronounce it, yeah? So, his name was Buni. The Gemara says, why is he called Agdim? The Gemara says, because of a mice that happened. What was the mice that happened to him? The Gemara says the Maisa that happened to him was a Maisa in the Jews coming to be Euler Regal. And when it came to be Euler Regal, there was not enough water. One year, there was not enough water. So he went and got a bunch of wells, like 12 wells from a, from a Roman. And he used these wells to be able to feed the Jewish people the water because the Euler Regal was much thirsty and, and they had nothing to drink. But he had an agreement with the Roman, whoever it was, they has to return the water by a certain time. And on that day, when the time came, he had to return the water. There was no water. It was still a drought. There was no water. And he's very nervous. What's he going to do? And the Roman's like knocking on the door. He's sending messengers. No, no, where's my money? He says, I have time. I have time. You have time. What do you mean time? It hasn't rained in months. It's not raining today. Let's go pay up. Says, I have to wait till the end, till the end of the day. Megamark concludes there that at the end of the day, there's still no rain. So the demon is going to start to die. And he says, I, could have spoke, I didn't do this for Kvot of myself, for Kvot Abba, Kvot Basi. I did this for the Kvot of the other Rega. They should want to come back. You know, Rosh Hashanah tells how worried we are about other Rega, right? That we have to take the testimony when we have enough testimony. We want people to come back. People came and they have no water. They're not going to come back. And all of a sudden, a big miracle, and it starts to pour. And of course, and Mamash, all these cisterns that he bought from the guy, they're filling up, overflowing with water. And he sees the guy on the street and he says, No, now you owe me money. I gave you a surplus of water back. He says, No, 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 you still owe me the money. It's already sunset. We have a time. And this is time of the essence contract. You owe me the money. 
So he makes a big again the tefillah takarubarbu, and the rain goes away and the sun comes back. And the more includes that Gim Ben Gurion Yeshua and Meitzri Abenu had three rooms. The sun stood still. I don't want to get into any science aspect now. That's not a relevant tangent. But what is interesting to me is the very next Gemara. This Gemara is Nagdim Ben-Gurion, and the Gemara right after that, the Gemara segues into a Misa with Rabbi Lezeb and Rabbi Shimon. And I think it's edifying for our story here about Sinat The Gemara tells us that Rabbi Lezeb and Rabbi Shimon used to say, you shouldn't be Pasha Ke'eres, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be um, a hard, like a cedar, but you should be a rach, right? You should be um, soft, easy, right? Like a like um, like a kana, like a reed. Says the Gemara, the Misa that Elizabeth of Shimon was learning very stark and he was feeling very good, and he was so much in the Simchas Torah, he had such a knowledge of Torah. I don't know if this is before the cave, after the cave, at whatever point in his life, but he was very happy. He was feeling very good about himself and his tremendous knowledge. And Rebbelezer ben Reb Shimon is feeling so good about himself and he's walking along and he sees an ish mechuar ma'od. He sees somebody exceedingly ugly. Rashi and Tracer say that it was Elio Anavi. This is one of the examples, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned this before. Um, but if you look at the first Maratzchias in the beginning of Tainus, Maratzchias says that Rashi and Tesis, um is a unique Rashi and Tesis in Tainus. It says Rashi is not really Rashi. It's from the students from Rashi's base marriage. It wasn't Rashi. And had one of his rayas is because of the fact that in Tainus, Tesis very often says exactly the same thing as Rashi says. Normally, if it was if it was Rashi, Tesis is not a Mefarish. Tesis is going to come along and do his pilpul. But in Titus, Tesis is a Mefarish because of the fact that he had no Rashi. That's why you can see Rashi and Tesis often saying the same thing. This is one of the examples. He's not bringing this as the example. It's a different example, actually. Um, but, um, but this is one of the examples. You look at Rashi and Tesis, each say that the old man, that the ugly man was Elion Nabi. Maybe. Anyhow, the story continues that the, the ugly man says to Rebbe Reb Shimon, and he says, uh, uh, like, how, how are you? It's good to see you. And Elizabeth Shimon looked at him and says, Wow, oh, you're really ugly. Like, that's a pretty amazing thing, how you could be so ugly. And the man's like, the ugly man says to Elizabeth Shimon, Tell my kainai, tell the maker who made me. What should I do? Elizabeth Shimon feels very bad. So he gets off his donkey and he apologizes to the man. And the man's like, I'll. Take your forgiveness when you tell my maker. Tell him. So, Rebbe Shimon follows him to the next town, and the whole time he's apologizing to him. The whole time the man's like, "Tell my maker when he says, when he says, uh, you know, it's okay. I'm okay." He gets into town, and it's a weird scene. Rebbe Shimon, the great rabbi, son of Shimon Bar Yochai, is following this ugly man. And again, you know, he's got a donkey walking behind him. Nobody's using a donkey. And he keeps on apologizing, apologizing to the guy. And the people in the town, they say, they say to the the of Shimon, Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi, good to see you. And the ugly man says, really? That's what you're saying Shalom Aleichem to? Calling him a Rabbi? They say, well, what's wrong? 
says, this is what he said to me. He said, I'm so ugly. How could it be? And the Buzzer of Shimon, um, they, 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 the townspeople are like, oh my gosh, that's a terrible thing. But look, he's been following you. He's trying to apologize to you. He's going to apologize to you all the way. Please, you know, take his apology. But because they pushed the man to take the apology, he accepts the apology. And he says, But you shouldn't become, you know, normative. You shouldn't be normal by you to talk like this to people. That's how the Gemara concludes. And the Gemara, uh, one last line in that Gemara, the Gemara says that the Blessed Rabbi Shimon would get up and he was darshaning that a person should be rach, right? He should be rach, and it shouldn't be kosher carried. It shouldn't be hard like a cedar. It should be rach, like should be soft like a reed. And I have to tell you a shot that I think might be right. It's not a shot that Pasha sounding warm, but I wonder if this is what's going on. But Blessed Rabbi Shimon is getting up in the shul after the Misa, and he says, a person should be rach, um, shouldn't be What's the point? What's the lesson that has to do with the story? What did Blessed Rabbi Shimon learn out from this story that he's sharing with the Eilam? The simple understanding, I think the simple shot is that he was haughty. He was kosher ke'eres. He thought he was amazing. He thought he's wonderful. He thought he's fantastic. Right? He is the best thing since sliced bread, or the best thing since Rav And so as a result of that, it's all kim to him, everything. So when he sees somebody who's exceedingly ugly, he's like a nobody. It's meaningless to him. So therefore, he could say a statement like that. He could come up with something so inappropriate to say about a person like wow, how ugly you are. True or not, how could he talk like that? This is the question understanding, I think, of the Gemara, which is He's telling about himself that he shouldn't be kashikaris. He should be a rach, like a like a kana. He shouldn't have such an ego. He shouldn't be filled with such proud pride for himself and what special person he is. I think that's one layer of understanding the Gemara. I'd like to share with you a second, and this will tie it all together and finish our introduction. I think what's going on in this Gemara is something that this Gemara is a bit of a double entendre. Rav Lezer Rav Shimon is not merely remonstrating with himself when he gets up there and says, well, Oilam Al-Tahi Rach Ka'eres, we should be, I'm sorry, Al-Tahi Rach, you should be, Al-Tahi Kasha Ka'eres, we should be Rach Kikana. He's not just telling about himself, remonstrating himself for acting inappropriately. He's remonstrating with that old man. But the Pashtun understanding is not that he's Elia Novi, not like Rashi and Tayshin, or Pseudo Rashi and Tayshin. The simple understanding, I think, of this Gemara is that Blessed Rabbi Shimon, the lesson that he's having from the story is not just that he had done something wrong. That old, that ugly person was wrong. The Gemara tells us, <coughs> the Gemara tells us that, that a person, when he, when he is um, doing something wrong to somebody, so he has to apologize. How many times does he have to apologize? How many times does he have to apologize? Right, three times. And after that, the person doesn't forgive. He's Nick Rafaite. Look at the round of Shuba. A person doesn't forgive, he's a Chaite. This person was offended and rightly so. Rabbi Shimon did something wrong to him. 
He called him an ugly person. He said he embarrassed him. He said something inappropriate, 100%. But you see that he took the criticism that he understood that he had done something wrong. And then he's abjectly following this person to the town, begging him for mechila. What do you want from a person? Not everybody does something right the first time. But so long as they can eventually reach a place of understanding and apprehension. So your job is now to forgive. If you're going to be refusing to forgive, not budging, you're the one who's a kosher ke'erez. You're the one who's not being rafkikana. And I think that's perhaps what Blessed Rabbi Shimon is saying in this story. Yes, he had done something wrong, sure, according to the Pashat but so had the ugly person who had refused to forgive him, despite his repeatedly asking, despite his willingness and his acquiescence and his acceptance of what he had done incorrectly. When we think about what Sinaskinam is, we said that what does it mean that when it comes to that the people of nowadays, nobody recognizes that they have any sinaskinam. But everyone knows it's sinaskinam. But by them, they don't have any sinaskinam. By them, it's all sinaskinam for a good reason. Yes, we have good reasons, but good reasons can still engender sinaskinam. And that's the word I want to share with you now, which is somebody wrongs a person. The reason you don't like them is not because of sinaskinam, it's because they wronged you. That's not sinaskinam. Sinaskinam is not being willing to let it go. Sinaskinam is not that there was no initial reason. There was a reason, but you can let it go. You can go beyond it. Sinaskinam is not necessarily somebody wakes up in the morning and just hates somebody next door for no reason. I don't know, maybe here somebody knows what the right psychological term is, but if somebody would get up in the morning and just hate somebody who he sees without any reason, that's probably something sociopathic or, or there must be a right psychological term. It's a weird thing. Most people don't wake up and just hate somebody for no reason. You hate somebody for a good reason. Now how could that be sinaskinam? Sinaskinam is I hate you, not because there's no reason, but it's because I'm unwilling to look beyond the reason. That is, if a person is a, able to understand and feel secure enough within themselves, that what Yenim did, yes, it was wrong, but I am a big enough person that I can look beyond it. Then a person is going to be made with the Geula, but a person who cannot. So yes, there was a good reason that he doesn't like him. But if he cannot look beyond it, if he can never get beyond it, if he can never grow with it, so that means your whole mahus is so tied to what Yenim did to you. So now you become the Chayte. Now you become the person who cannot get beyond it. And yes, ideally the person comes and is miracle for you. For sure. And if the person doesn't, technically how luckily you don't have to look beyond it. But if you want to know what sinaskina means, it does not mean hating for baseless reason that you just woke up one morning and decided to hate somebody. That would be some sort of a psychological problem that a person has. No, if you hate somebody for the right reason, initially, but you have been unable to grow in life. You've been unable to see that our Kodesh Baruch who wanted that whatever to happen to happen. You've been unable to realize that that person is less secure than you. You've been unable to see whatever the reason and the context is for that person doing what he did. If you cannot look beyond and you're still hating, that's the sin of that we are all suffering from.
The Gemara there, the Gemara there brings a Misa about, about Rav, that he apologized to Kanina Barakama 13 times before he got forgiveness. In the context of what's going on today in the land of Israel, and the two sides not being able to talk to each other, seemingly in peace, whatever we have the ability to increase the Avasinam, to increase the fraternity, if there's any way we have a conversation with somebody living in the land of Israel, to try to be mizaka them and to be down the Kavistos, to explain that there's much bigger picture and much bigger issues of concern. It's only Tavale and Bracha. So now we'll start with number six. situation of it's not a it's not a situation of normative ups and downs. It's situations of static virality, situations of unmitigated and unbridled evil that have happened to the Jewish people. In a way, it's like unbelievable hatred and 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 destruction of the Jewish people over the centuries. How could Akkadish Borku allow such a thing? Now 
that kind of a perfection. So we know that, okay, fine, we get what we deserve. But still, if you look at the Jewish people as a body politic, if you look at the destruction, suffering of the Jewish people compared to other nations, okay, I mean, it's just, there's certain things that are just not normal. You can't say that this is in any way normative. So what do you have to say? You have to come on to the idea of, that's free choice. That Hakadosh Baruch was allowing a Paro and a Hitler and a Chomenitsky and a and a Ferdinand. And a, he's allowing people to exist, tyrants drunk off their own power, who will do insane and in unbelievable, murderous, madman type of things over the centuries. That is part and parcel of living in the world of free choice. Fine. But that's not the same thing as saying the sinas Hashem American tribe. What the Jewish people said that the very Rashi brings down, they said something very different. The Jewish people there said that Akarbaku made the destruction of the Jewish people at that time, what they thought was going to be the destruction of the Jewish people by the Miraglam, that he was doing the whole thing as a means in order to be able to hurt them. What does it mean to hurt them? Hashem really wants to hurt the Jewish people. Then why are you taking that out of Israel? What were they saying? What were they really saying? Seems to me that what the Jewish people were saying then is a very pernicious kind of a taina against Hakadosh Baruch Hu. The phrase says that Masha Belibecha, what you have in your heart, you tell it on someone else. They hated Hakadosh Baruch Hu, so they blamed Hakadosh Baruch Hu for hating them. That's what they said. What was their taina? I understand their China saying the following. The, the Jewish people were saying about what they're really timing is that we are your pawn. You run the world and what you care about is your name. And at the end of the day, the entire Universe is meant to self-aggrandize. It's meant that everyone should pay homage to you. So, therefore, everything in the world is really a pawn to get at your ultimate purpose, which is that the world should acknowledge you. When you think about what happened in Mitzrayim, openly said, at the very beginning, that he's going to give Lachish Bechayr. That was the punishment for power and not sending out the Bechayr. Right? So why is there SM Makas? Why doesn't there just one Makas? Just have Makas Bechayrit. Just go straight to it. That's what Hashem told Maish is going to do. Why didn't we go straight to Makas Bechayrit? Why do we have to have the whole, you know, plot and thicken the plot and have all the different Makas and the warnings and the little playing games? Because the Torah tells us in Pasha's boy and in Pasha's of Eira, Vula, Bab, where they send out of Dicho, right? Laharis is crazy. The whole thing is a game. How are you supposed to talk about how amazing I am? And the Jewish people are supposed to talk about how amazing I am? So you really didn't have to bring 10 makas. You could have brought one maka. We extended Paris Bashala. What happened to Paris Bashala? The Jews could have gone in, in, in a direction that didn't convince the Egyptians to come chase them. But instead, they turned around the direction. So Pari said, oh, Pari, like, let's go get him. And of course, that was just a setup to go and do the Kriya Samsa, which was even bigger than all the Makas before. So you didn't have to have Kriya Samsa. Kriya Samsa was just there to 
be the cherry on top, the icing on the cake, the greatest of the great miracles. And now everyone is going to talk about how amazing you are, God is horrible. So we're just pawns. You're not doing it because it has to be done. You're doing it because it's all about grandizing your name. And so if it means you're going to elongate our suffering in Egypt, make it 10 markets, say it no more. If that means you're going to move on and, and, and destroy us in the Midbar, or let us, or, or bring us into the land of Israel, then destroy us over there. So we're not going to be able to take over until you <laughs> reach a point where you decide you want to destroy the Canada and make the story that much longer and that much more interesting. Right? Nobody reads a good novel where they start out once upon a time life was great, and then the next page is life was amazing, and then the next page life was even more perfect, and the next page after that he went from Mechayel Ochayel. That would be the worst selling list. It would be the number one worst seller. What's a good novel? What's a good story? How do you get people in a plot? You have to thicken the plot. He has to be the protagonist and the hero has to go from the high and the low. He has to go tumultuous. That's what it has to be. So our Kodesh Brogu is making a fantastic plot. He's making it so interesting. It seems like it just constantly is thickening and it goes up and it goes down. So really, Hashem, you're just doing it. The Sinas Hashem who says this to pray, that Rashi brings down, Mother, believe what is in your own heart. If you say on your friend, you don't like a Kodesh Brokh, Jewish people don't like a Kodesh Brokh because they think that they're being born and they're blaming a Kodesh Brokh for hitting them. That we're not having permission for on, on Tisha to say. That's an anathema to Judaism, to Yahweh. We understand that a Kodesh Brokh was fearing the veil. He's made this world in order to be able to give us good. A Kodesh Brokh was cool. He wants us to have good. He's designed the world to give us good. But in order to have us apprehend and appreciate the good, it has to be full evil, full free choice. And that means tremendous carbonus, tremendous sacrifices, tremendous suffering, and madmen, sociopaths, murderous tyrants, Yimakshimam Azifram, are going to appear from time to time in the annals of history and give us a run for our money. This Kina is saying, Echa Asta so we end off. Give now to the eighth, you know. At the end of the king over here, we say, We say here, we're going to bend the knee to our Kodesh We say over here, We're um, bending the knee, we're, we're um, accepting his rulership, and we're saying, We forever have not been going on the right direction. We have abandoned you. We have gone against you. We have 
not been perfect. It's not avoidance of, of, of this. It's not, uh, uh, you know, bitl para. It's a real juicy avoidance. And as a result of that, the answer to Eifa is, of course, in a philosophical way, free choice. But in a practical way, we deserve it. When we look at our own pekla, if we look at our own, our own little um, um, notebook that we are taking down how we're living our life, the answer is there, which is our imperfections are great. And so therefore, is not that especially for our generation that has not had to go through what our grandparents and great-grandparents went through, it's a very different answer. For our generation, we've grown up with plenty, we've grown up with everything. It's a very different kind of age. We don't have that same kind of time on a father's growth. We didn't watch parents and grandparents and sisters and brothers and children all being decimated and destroyed, burned. We didn't have that. So if we didn't have that, and instead we had a life of plenty, a life of being full every day, a life of having heat in the house. So what, 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 what is our complaint? We haven't, despite all the plenty, been right, let's skip to kina number 11. This kina is you know, traditional Yumyo is the one who wrote it on Yeshua's death. It's not a kina of the Mishnah, it's a kina of a specific person. And Yeshua tried to be making a chuva movement. He didn't, he was not successful. The kina here says that Asha Achar Adelis Kamalista, the people, they, they acted like they had become all from, but behind the doors, they kept the getchka, right? Or the way that when they, when they would open the door, it looked like there was no getchka. When they closed the doors, it seemed like there was a getchka there. So it was just the thought, even though Yermio says, Lord, dear show how great of a king he was, he made a big mistake. And his big mistake was he thought, based upon a person in the church, that he thought that there's no problem to, uh, to go fight against Paranachai. Paranachai is telling, listen, I have no battles with you. Remember, Israel at that time, then and today, is the crossroads of the world. It is the middle place, connect the Levant, connect Europe, Asia, and Africa. So it was always a desirous territory of all the different empires that existed. And Paranachai is saying, I have no issue here. I'm going to a different battle. I have no no quarrel with you. Don't mess around. And Yeshua says, no. The Pasuk says that when the times are good, there should be no sword that's crossing the land of Israel, traversing our land. So therefore, I'm going to go attack you. And of course, he gets Destroyed, the archer shoots hundreds of arrows at him. And Yoshio at the end, as he's breathing his last breath, so Yomio is putting his um, putting his ear to hear what he has to say as last last words. He says, Sadiq Hashem ki Marisi Fiu.
And then he took a, a sword, the Gemara says, and he stabbed the Parechas. And out of it came blood. And um, this is part of his way of being the Vaz of the Beit HaMikdash. And we would say in the Gemara, all the honor was destroyed, was lost. There's another Gemara. The Gemara in Yuma tells us about that when the Jewish people would come, when they would come to the Euler Regal, they would open up the Parachet and they would show the crew of the Mu'urim Zebazem. And they would say, Ruhi Bastam of Ne'amokim, Ke Ish Mayor based upon a Pasuk in Malachim. They would say, look at this very intimate relationship. Look at these two of them that they are intertwined with each other like a man and a woman, like a man and his wife. That's the relationship that you have with that God of And this, you go to Nach, you see this repeatedly, that we have different levels of relationship with that God On the one hand, we're On the other hand, we are also considered and on the other hand, we have a deeper relationship with the Kabbalists, the Hasidic farm will go off on this, which is a relationship like a man and a wife. Navi says in Ashea that you're no longer going to call me Baal, you're going to call me Ishi. You're going to call Akkadish Goko a husband. Knesset Israel is like the Kala. The Gemara tells us that in order to Imprinted on the minds of the Jewish people when they were Ayla they would open up the art, they would open up the Kurdish Akadashim and show them the proof in them so they should have a physical manifestation of the love of Akadash Gorkha and the Jewish people. The Gemara tells us that when it came time by the second bias, when they, Rishlaka says, when they opened the doors to the Kurdish Akadashim, and again, in the Pasha Chandra Gemara, it doesn't seem like that was exactly what happened. First of all, in the second bias, there was, no, there was nothing in the Pasha Chandra Just the heaven should see, there was nothing there. There was no iron anymore. There were proven that were on the walls of the base of Mikdash, maybe that. Uh, from Rashi, it seems that that's what we're discussing, but we'll see, as we say soon, um, that that's not the only way to understand the Gemara. But they sort of proven their words that was that. And they took it out to show the the nation that showed the Romans that Yisrael halalu halalu. They said that these Jewish people, you think they're so amazing? You think they're so special? They are engaged in this very prurient kind of activity. This is not holiness. This is very uh, much the opposite of it. Prurient. And so therefore, they attempted to, they attempted to mock the Jewish people as a result of having this kind of a proven. And that's what we say again in the positive, that all their things of honor were sort of put down and lowered down. Many ask, the Shinnik Vetas ask in Babasra, how is it that we know the Gemara tells us about Basra that the proven they were they were not mechanical, but they seemed to be able to move. Now, when Akharish Baruch was happy with the Jewish people, they would be intertwined 
and an embrace that would be like a man and a woman. But when Hashem was not happy with the Jewish people, they would be turned not face to face, but back of the head to back of the head, that they weren't looking at each other. And that was a symbol that they were displeased, that Kodesh Baruch was displeased with the Jewish people. So the the Shizik Mezah asked, how is it that when there came time for the destruction of the bias, that the Kruvah Mewur and Zebazet, as I said, maybe it's the first bias, I'm not sure. But the Umar Yuma tells us in relation to the second bias and seemingly in relation to the Kruvah that were in Sursa, but be it as it may. That's the Shizik Mezah's question. Answers she took about for the Rimigash. She brings out two answers for the Rimigash. The first answer he brings is the Heroic Laakum Mahayusra to show the non Jews. Look at how amazing Jewish people are. You see, Akkadrizbo, who loves them so much, is a physical manifestation of his love for the Jewish people. The second answer for the Rimigash is the opposite. It's the harvest of the Jewish people to show them the Kulan, show them the Busha, show them the Kherpa. You see how low you've fallen? You see how 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 you become um, trampled upon. That this is where you were, and now this is where you are. I'd like to share with you a third answer, my own answer. My agonist is that you want to know what it means that they are at the moment of destruction. It's uh, for me a poem. I remember reading it as a, a, a child. I don't know how old it is, but it was called Footsteps or Footprints in the Sand. And it's basically a person who's walking along over the over a lifetime, and he sees as he's uh, going over his life, he sees footprints in the sand. And there's always two sets of footprints, but at times there's only one set of footprints. And he says, he says to God, he says, when I look at the times when I see only one set of footprints, it, those are the worst times in my life. So why is it, that at the worst times in my life, you abandoned me and it's only one set of footprints? Why isn't it two sets of footprints at that point? Why did you leave me? It's the worst times of my life. And the answer that Kodesh Baruch says is, at that time I was carrying. During the worst moments of your life, that's what I'm carrying. And that's why you only see one set of footprints. Again, this is very anthropomorphic. This is not a medrash, the secular medrash, but I like it. Because it brings home the point for me that at the time of the destruction, they're Me'ur and Zebazah. Because Kodesh Baruch still loves you. And I want to share with you a fourth answer, an answer from the B'nai Yisafa. This answer blows the mind. Only a Hasidic master can say an answer like this. Unbelievable answer. That's the B'nai Mark tells us, a couple of different places, Mark tells us that person who is Yerkel has to be like his wife. Whether that means Hashmish or that means other sort of uh, things that make a wife happy, breathe the bar or things of that sort. Um, at least when it's some of the best stuff. But otherwise, it's pretty clear that the halacha is 
that Pekin means in an intimate way. And the Gemara says that whenever a person is yet to the Daref, that we learn it from two different Sukkim. The Gemara shouldn't want to know, but different Sukkim learn it to Elisheik, the Shukaseh. Says the Bnei Yisrael that you know why the Kruvim Amur and Zeb Because at that time, at that time, Akash Baruch is being Yitzel Adarah. That's the way of saying goodbye. He's been piking up. Me, but obviously, just as a sort of side, right? This didn't take place at one time, it took place over, over, over decades for sure, maybe longer. And um, the basic takeaway why we're saying it here is because you have to understand that losing these people who the the Bali Trace side, the Bali Masteria, the people that transmitted the turf from generation to generation was akin to the destruction of Eretz Yisrael. 
Just mentioned that Zarah mentioned in the of Ishmael that when he was killed, that they had scraped off his skin and forgot to muck and fill him. He thought The Gemara tells us now that there was a yantif. It's not considered from the normally of the by the guy because it was only a yantif once every 70 years. The Gemara says that Rishmal is was so handsome. Actually, the best place to start this is the Gemara and Gitan. The Gemara and Gitan tells us that that Mishmael ben Elisha, he was taken a prisoner. And Rabbi Shuba Hananya heard about a prisoner who was the Yifei, the Yifei Naim Bitei He was very handsome. He was very handsome. He had beautiful curls. He was a very good-looking young man. And he went to the prison where the, person, where the boy was. And he started talking to him about who was responsible for the destruction? And the boy said, We are. The boy finished the passage, but we were responsible because we had not listened to the words of Akari Bar. And as a result of that, Rabbi Shmuel, uh, Rabbi Shu was so impressed with this young man that he spent a lot of money to redeem him, take him out of the jail. And he said, Most of my Jews going to be a Mayra Hayrabi Israel. He's going to be somebody big. Or you think kind of Moshim Sakim, beginning Sakim about people who. Talk inappropriately. If you talk appropriately, Rabbi Dimar says differently. The Rabbi Rabbi from Zaka, he moved up anybody she was going to be a mayor of Israel. Rabbi Shu was very convinced that Rishmo was going to become a great, great person. You know, about it from the song, Rabbi Dimar, beginning of Brachas, Rishmo Ben Elisha and his Aliyah, you know, about it from the Karbanas at the end of Rishmo and his hermeneutical principles. Rishmo Ben Elisha is very good looking. He's so good looking that. The Machshef, uh, the, the daughter of the Hegman, didn't want him to be killed. She wanted him to stay around and service her. And the father's like, no, no, he's dying. But when they died, when he killed him, they took his skin, they laid his skin in a way that it would still be able to be preserved. And they took the Karkapu, they took his head, and they would put it on. Gemara says that the Yantif that the Romans celebrated once every seven years was the Yantif where Adam Shalem would ride atop of Adam Tiger. And this was meant to personify Asaf and Yaakov. That Yaakov was Tzele al and Asaf was a Shalem. And show that Asaf is riding on top of Yaakov. That Asaf, right, Pasuk tells us that Asaf was very upset that he didn't get the Brachot. Yisrael was very nervous what happened, but in the end he said, what did he say after um, after he realized the day? He says, Gam Yaakov is still going to be blessed. And Yisrael is not okay with that. And Yisrael says, but Tantam, Amarach Ha'achasi L'cha'avi. 
He's the only one bracha. Bracha any got money of Please give me a bracha too. He said, I already gave him. I'll bracha. He said, okay, I'll give you something. And the bracha that he gives them is that you are going to be on top only when you can throw off his yoke on you. If you can't, then he's on top. Asa was very angry at these brachas and he said that, that when his dad is going to pass away, when Yitzhak is going to pass away, then he's going to kill Yaakov. And so the Romans, they made a holiday where Asa is riding on top of Yaakov. That's what they're trying to allude to by having Adam Shalom on top of Adam Kiger to show that Asa is on top. And the person would be wearing a mask Says the Gemara, it was like a couple of Rabbi Shmuel with his face. They put on Rabbi Shmuel's face, which was so handsome. Rashi says that they, they, uh, they took they took Rabbi Shmuel's skin, and they put it in a parsimon. Parsimon is like parsimon. I don't know what's so special about parsimon, but and honey or whatever they put it in, and they, that's how they preserved the skin. They would take it out for this big holiday once every seven years to show their power, to show their strength. Over the Jewish people. In that Rashi over there on, on Abayda Zara, on Yer Aleph, Rashi there says, the Adayin begins a Rami. Right? says that the Kakapal of Rabbi Shmuel is still in the Roman vault. This, of course, is, you know, it was unnecessary for Rashi to say. Right? The holiday was no longer being practiced. Why is Rashi saying the Adayin is still there? I don't know. For those that believe that the Vatican is holding all the treasures of Jewish people, this Rashi is a good source. But you laugh that maybe it sounds absurd that the Romans maybe had the treasures. It's not absurd. They certainly took the treasures. We know about the Arch of Titus. Now we know about what they did there, what they took back. Clearly in the Minerva, there seems to be some sort of a lack of him. Um, uh, some sort of shofan for the left of him. There seems to be some um, uh, aspects that have been lost over time, but they certainly paraded around their victory over the Jewish people because it was not a minor victory. Remember, I think I may have pointed this out a few years ago, people said, and we know this historically be the case, that the various different Vespasian, Titus, they could not destroy the Jewish people until they got in some massive army that they brought in from Britannia. Britannia is what we call England today. Now just imagine traveling from England, an army over land, all the way to the land of Israel in order to be able to win the war. That's how many reinforcements they needed to be able to take down a little puny colony of Jewish people that hadn't been powerful enough to run their own country for a few hundred years. That's the only way they were able to defeat them. And then it was with starvation, literally for years, and incredible losses of Roman troops. But they were 100% prepared to show off the booty. They built an incredible monument to show how impressive they were. And legend has it that they were going to build a museum. And it shouldn't sound far-fetched, huh? Hitler was planning a museum of the cultural artifacts of the Jews. And he had, and there's stories that would, would, would take way too much time, but numerous stories 
of various different items that he planned to put into the museum and the boxes where these things were stored in in Czechoslovakia for the museum and incredible stories of people saving things and getting stuff out of it, like unbelievable. But this was all to be a museum when there was no longer Jews to show what their cultural artifacts were. The idea of destroying the Jews and making the museum of showing how impressive one was to be able to do it, not so far-fetched. So going back to Rabbi Shimon, he was so good looking, he was so handsome. And not only he, his children, one of the kinets that we skipped over was a child of, of Rabbi Shimon, a boy and a girl, the Gitten. The Gemara tells us that the owners, they were sold as slaves, the owners of each one said that I have the most handsome child, let's marry them together, and we'll have even more amazing children, we'll divide up the children. And they would try to misdive them, and each one said, like, I'm a, I'm a Kayan, I'm a Kahenet, I'm a Basi Heaven, I'm a Ben Aaron, how could I possibly be national like this? And they didn't do anything in the morning, they recognized who each other were, and they cried, actually, you The idea being that the Jewish people's suffering, the travail, we mentioned on the Beis HaMikdash, we mentioned on the Isaiah Levanon, we mentioned on Yeshua, mentioned even on just kids. The Gemara Gittin tells us about the 400 kids on the boat, the boys and the girls, and the, each one didn't want to be next and knew what was going to happen. The girls jumped in first. Even the most innocent of babes, what we remember today, is that the destruction wasn't just on those who said, yeah, I have a peckle, yeah, I've done something wrong. But on those who never did anything wrong, on those who were too young to ever have committed any averes. Yeah, we can take on for ourselves and say we have a peckle, not for them. For them, we say, it's an argument of storm, we have no answers. How you want the, want the world to run in order for us to be able to have the future. Skip now to Kina number 36. Um, these are from the series of Sian Kinas from, from, from Judah Levi, one of the famous Titans, him and Rosa Kali are the two greatest Titans in the Jewish people. And we're not going to say the rest of them, but there are so many. I don't know what the versions are that everybody has. My version may be a little bit different than some other. So as we said, the 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 things that we've been talking about the Beit Hamikdash, we've been talking about the Arzalavan, the greatest Gedolim, we're talking about the innocent babes, we're talking about the Hamayin Hamayin Ha'am that have been killed. But now we also need to talk about the land. Seeing how Halitzah Shalim, I must be right. We're talking about the land of Israel itself. 
The land of Israel is a personality. The land of Israel is a personality to be reckoned with. It is a land that does not respond when we are not there. And for the 2,000 years that we were not able to be living within it, it didn't, it was not a fecund land. It was not a fertile land. It didn't produce, didn't provide any benefit to anybody who held it. Everybody wanted to hold it and nobody could hold it well. Nobody could produce anything from it. It became a land, a desert land, a wasteland. The famous Mark Twain um, uh, article that he wrote when he was at Harper's Magazine. And we imagine these days, he uh, probably did something a lot more impressive. But in those days, he was paid a big salary to go travel around the world and write about his experiences. He was the greatest writer in English in America. And he wrote about his experiences. One of them was, of course, going to the land of vision. That's why we have evidence from what it was like in the late 1800s what the land of Israel at that time was like. Remember, this is the time of the first Aliyah. This is the time when there's tremendous pogroms in Russia, and that's what's giving a big impetus for people to come out, to come back. And that's when the land is filled with malaria swamps. It's filled with, with the desert. It's not producing anything. It hasn't produced anything in almost 2000. So what we're talking about here is the land itself. If you look at Paris and Christ, so you know that there's one plastic there, plastic crisis, you raise up your voice. You know, that's not a switch of tune. I'm able to do that, okay. But you, you raise up your voice over there. And the reason you raised up your voice over there is because the Kodesh Bible says that he's going to remember, I'm going to remember what? I'm going to remember and the plastic continues and the plastic finishes, ah, right? I'm going to remember the land itself. Say, many mafarshim. What do you mean by Aretz Eskar? Why is the following Avrits of Yaakov? Says the various Mepharshim that it could be that the source of Avrits of Yaakov is not going to be enough to help the Jewish people. It's the source of the land that's going to, at the end of the day, win for the Jewish people. It's the source of the land itself. A land that remains faithful to us through the centuries. And when we're not there, it's not going to be waking up. It only wakes up for us and is loyal only to us. And therefore, we are thinking about Zion. We're thinking about Zion. Right, that's more the end of the stupid. That when they would come and they would trample and they would, they would roll around in the dust and the government make fun, what are they doing? No, no, it's the very dust of the land of Israel. It has a personality, it has a love for us.
now we're going to Kina number 41. There's a Kina, there's a Kina that most think is a, is a response, is a Kina written after the destruction of 20 wagon loads of the Talmud that was burned in Paris. The burned in Paris near 1242. What happened? Well, what happened was, was a disputation between the of Paris, one of the Balayat faces, and the, of course, a Shuman, a Jew, and he, quote, lost the debate. And so as a result of losing the debate, the punishment was to burn the Talmud for inducing all these heretical notions. One has to know that he didn't lose the debate. It wasn't the fair debate. It was a debate unlike the Ramban's debate. The Ramban had had a debate years before in Aragon, in Spain, where he lived. And in that debate, the Ramban had told the king, I'm only going to debate if I have freedom of speech, to say whatever I want to say, even if it sounds heretical. And the king had granted a freedom of speech, and the Meshubin, who couldn't hold a candle to the Ramban in learning, quotes a few Midrashim that he thought were arrived to him, and the Ramban destroyed him. The Ramban and the Kolkista, the Ramban, has a recording of the Ramban's side of the debate, but it's 100% sure that the Ramban won the debate because he was given a, a stack of coins, of gold coins, and eventually he was asked to leave. That's why the Ramban makes Aliyah because the king said that he can't protect him. He has said such heretical things. He has destroyed the, the Christian faith so much that he has to leave. And that's why the Ramban goes to the land of Israel. We find the commentary of the Ramban of Chumash when he writes, oh, now that I came to the land of Israel, I can tell you this shot. That's the Ramban winning a debate where it was a fear debate. Here it was not a fear debate. He was not allowed to say what he wants to say. And it was a cash 22. If you don't have the ability to say what you're going to say, and you're still going to lose and lose the Talmud. So, you know, wasn't really a, wasn't really a fear fight. But there are those that suggest that there was a, another aspect to this debate that needs to be mentioned. It relates to our topic. Our topic of Sinasinam, our inability to see another in a reasonable way So those that want to suggest that Rabbeinu Yonah wrote the Shari Tshuva as a result of this. You see, because in 1236, Rabbeinu Avram and Rabbeinu Yonah tried to promulgate a ban on the Rambam Sefer Abado and on the Sefer of Baranavut. And the reason was because they were very uncomfortable. The Rambam and the Baranavut can quote so much of Greek philosophy. And in Sefer Amada, certainly in Sefer Yatera, the first four broken, 
are not what you would consider to be regular or reasonable kind of understandings of the basics of, of Yadot, very influenced by philosophy, to say that Amos Hashem and Yerush Hashem, the way the Rabbim understood it, was for them an anathema. And so they wanted a better. The Ramban, even though the Ramban goes after the Ramban, but good, the Sefer HaMitzvah, the Ramban writes the defense of the Ramban and writes letters to Rabbeinu Avram and Ha'ar, telling him to desist, cease and desist, pull back. Do not engage the Ramban on this topic. The Ramban is long dead, by the way. He's not alive to defend himself. He's long gone. He's like, do not fight with the Rambam on these points. First of all, how could you go after the Sefer Ramada? In the letters the Ramban writes that the Sefer Ramada, the Rambam has done something totally unique. He's done something no one's ever done before. Hilchus Shuvah. Nothing was like Hilchus Shuvah before the Rambam. The Rambam created Hilchus Shuvah. You know the joke? It's a great joke. The good one. The Rabbim has a Hilchus Shuvah, yeah? But you know there's no Hilchus Shuvah in Shulchan Aruch. There's no Hilchus Shuvah in the Torah. Why not? Because Shulchan Aruch and the Torah, they only do halachas that are applicable to the Zman of that. I'm not getting enough Zman. The Rabbim is writing even halachas that apply to the Mashiach, they no longer apply anymore. The Rabbim has a Hilchus Shuvah. Yeah. Let's do that again. There's the Ramban. The Ramban went through, caused her cool, put it together, beautiful work like this. No one's ever did anything like this before. He's the first. Are we going to take that away? You're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater? And then he continues. He sends a few letters, and each letter he gets stronger and stronger. He says, your band is not going to win. If your band is going to lose, by definition, you're too late to the game. He says, in Yemen, I hear reports. They say, they're saying in Kaddish, by the life of Rabbeinu Moshe Ben Maimon, it's too late. You're not banning anything. You're never going to lose. So it's a fool's irony. Even if you think that the swarm is not really worthwhile to you. And you really don't want to have the safe one. But you're not going to win. The Rambam mm -hmm. has been too much accepted. And to a point that they literally mentioned in serenading him in Kaddish, you're not going to win. And then it gets to the heart of the matter, which may not be correct, but it is at least his kind of a down the count book. Says the Rambam. So you don't like the Marina Bukhan because it quotes so much of secular philosophy, the Greeks, and all of that, right? The Ramban himself didn't love it either. But he says you have to understand the cultural milieu. You have to understand who the Rambam was talking to. This is a whole statement of Damashitajabikari. The entire work is replete with explaining for those who are subsumed. And it's hard for us to understand today because who studies philosophy is fun. But in those days when philosophy was the name of the game, that was the topic du jour for the intellectual. The Ramam is giving him a way to be a from Jew. He's giving a way to be the kind of Terry Mitchell. He's kept thousands of people within the fold. We shouldn't be banning the like that. 
The legend is that the Rishonim of the time felt that because they burned the Rambam's works, that the wagon loads of Talmud and Paris were burned Mida connected Mida. These are works not of Princeton. The Princeton, Mr. Guttenberg, wasn't developed until the 1400s. This is Torah that will never be found again. Torah that was lost forever. All handwritten wagon loads of the shots and the portion never to be seen again. Mida connected Mida to being paired together on the cover of the Ramla. Lest you think that these things only erupt once in a while. This is the year 1236. 1242 is the burning of is the Ramban writing to, to the Rabbeinu of Ramana 1242 is the burning of the wagon with the Talmud. And in 1305, we're back at it again. So how many years later is that? From 42 to, thir- to 1300 is about literally 60 years. 60 years later, erupting again, this time in the south of France today, then known as Provence, the separate, separate country. That's the town of the Meiri, town of the Riven. Again, same Maizen. People are not happy with the Raman's work. They bring in the Rashba. This is when it becomes a Yuzera, the decree not to study philosophy for a certain age, different. I don't want to get into the whole tangential topic now. And it has happened again and again over the centuries that when we don't like something, we don't like something strongly enough that we beat it and we ban it and we burn it. What we need and ought to remember is that being down the cusp person who we don't like, who we don't agree with, there's a way to disagree and still keep them within the fold. There's a way to disagree and still dance with them at the same wedding. There's a way to disagree and still have fraternity among brothers. This is the challenge of Tishabot. This is what we're learning, unfortunately, what happened in 1242. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
the child struggles on the back of his parents. And his father points to the finger in the sky. And stroke the child's head. seems to be explaining something. In this moment, Bethesda's man in the ditch bolts up into the cavalry. The ladder carries it off to 20 people and order them behind the mound. The family, which I've just spoken with, is in the group. I still remember the young girl, slender and dark, passing near me, pointed at herself, saying, I'm 23. I walked around the mound and faced a frightful common grave, highly packed corpses, the heaps so close together that only the head showed. Most were wounded in the head, and blood flowed over their shoulders. Some still moved. Others raised their hands and turned their heads to show that they were alive. The dish was two-thirds full. I estimate that it held a thousand bodies. I turned my eyes to the man who carried out the execution. It was an SS man. He was seated, leg swinging on the narrow edge of the ditch. The automatic rifle rested on his knees, and he was smoking a cigarette. The people completely naked climbed down a few steps and stopped at the place indicated by the SS man. Facing the den and wounded, they spoke softly to them. Then I heard a series of rifle shots. I looked in the ditch and saw their bodies contorting their heads already in earth, sinking on the corpses beneath. The blood flowed from the nape of their necks. I was astonished not to be ordered away, but then I noticed two or three uniformed postmen nearby. A new batch of victims approached the place. They were climbing down the same ditch, lined up in front of the previous victims, and were shot. On the way back, while rounding the mound, I saw another full truck which had just arrived. The truck contained only the sick and crippled. The woman already naked were undressing an old woman with an emaciated body, her legs partially thin. She was held up by two people and seemed paralyzed. The naked people led her behind the mound. I left the place with Monikas and went back to Dubno in a car. The next morning, returning to the construction site, I saw some 30 naked bodies lying 30 to 50 yards from the ditch. Some were still alive. They stared into space with a set look, seeming not to feel the coolness of the morning air. A young girl of about 20 spoke to me, asking me to bring her clothes to help her escape. That moment, we heard a sound of a car approaching at top speed. I saw there was an SS detachment and went back to my work. Ten minutes later, rifle shots sounded from the ditch. The Jews who were still alive had been ordered to throw the bodies into the ditch. They then had to lie down themselves to receive a bullet in the back of the neck. In case we didn't understand the translation of the book of Rebbe, but that would be good to see.
the Latino wrote that. Do you have to walk with him, Fisher? You say everything in church? Do I say the word? No. <laughs> no, I'm not asking him because he like skips around. Yeah. So I'm wondering what they do. No, I'm sure they don't skip. If, 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 uh, people say every word, I can understand. Yeah. Right. I try to, uh, I, I, most of the stuff I try to eyeball, you know, and read it to myself. Because I can't read it and say it at the same time. My mouth is not that fast. My eyes are fast. But they go through everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said that. Yeah. 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 Yeah.